and amen. Thank you so much, Mary. Appreciate that very much and appreciate you being here this morning and glad that we can meet together here and worship the Lord. And I'm glad to be back. Very glad to be back. Although I have to say I enjoy my time immensely in the Bahamas, but I'm also glad to be back home. I'm not a... I'm not a real good traveler, I guess you'd say. Um, I like the experiences of new things and meeting people, but the hassle of living out of a suitcase is not my my piece of cake at all or cup of tea or anything else. I don't much care for that. But I, I do like going places. And we had a great time in Nassau. We appreciate you praying for us while we were there. We got all the Bibles there and didn't get to take all the other books I wanted to but because... Um, we didn't have quite the space I was anticipating. Uh, it's quite a hassle to travel anymore. If you've traveled internationally at all, and even domestically, it's not so much fun as it used to be, you know, going through customs and immigration. And, I mean, they check you to the nth degree, and they check your luggage, and they weigh it. And, and boy, on the way out, I forgot about liquids. You know, you're not supposed to have anything bigger than, I think, three ounces of liquids, well, I had a bunch. So they took some cologne, they took my toothpaste, they took um, something else. Can't remember what it was. It was about three or four things they they kept them, you know. And uh, anyway, oh, I had I brought back some. Uh, I didn't have. I wish I could have had room to bring back some Goombay punch for everybody. <laughs> yeah, joy like that. Uh, I brought some back. But I had it, you know, you're not supposed to bring these liquids in your carry-on. You can put them in your checked luggage. Well, I had all these cans of sodas in my in my carry-on. So I had, they wouldn't, you know, fortunately they were kind enough to let us take them out and put them in the other luggage before uh, we got into there where it was too late. Now with the other things, I'd already put my check-on luggage on the line. It was gone. So when they found all these other bottles and stuff that was over three ounces, why, they kept it. But I got to take those out and rearrange them. Well, I mean, it's a mess. You know, people are coming through, and and, um, Seth and Tracy and I, all three, we were rearranging things in our baggage. And so I had all these sodas in in, in my suitcase, this big one that was checking. Well, as you can imagine, they got a little crushed a little bit. I lost three of them. Everything in my suitcase was sticky. All my clothes, everything was soaked. I'm just, I mean, I'm getting rid of that piece of luggage. And the wheel was broke off, broke off of it anyway. The night I was packing the luggage, one of the wheels broke off. And it was a big one. You know, I mean, it stood like, you know, one of them big things about that high. And it was about yay wide. So I had to drag it around everywhere I went. And so that thing's going in the trash. It's gone. Uh, it's going to be history for long. But nonetheless, we had a good time. We met on Wednesday uh, for prayer meeting. Tracy Daniels preached. They really loved him and um, had a great time, a fellowship with them. Then on Thursday, we met with some of the men from the church, and we just had a time of fellowship and talking about the scriptures. <coughs> a lot of questions concerning the kingdom. Uh, this was their thing. They, I mean, they... I hadn't remember, I think I told you, I hadn't heard an awful lot from them since I'd been there in 1999. But boy, the first thing they brought up was we want to hear some more things about the kingdom. So we uh, got to spend about three hours that night 
just t- uh, talking about the scriptures and fellowshipping together. And then they had bought some trays, a couple of trays of sandwiches from Subway. And uh, we at 10 o'clock or about 10:15, we we had some something to snack on after that. Down there, they have. Uh, course they had a lot of seafood so the subway had some crab salad sandwiches so that was good too then we had a free day on thursday or excuse me on friday and so i rented a car and we traveled around the island and took seth around to the school where he'd gone for three years and uh, and to the church a baptist bible church where we we had attended met a lot of folks that he remembered and that remembered him and um then we, uh, on Saturday morning, we went on church visitation, and that was just like I remembered it. We had a great time there as well. And then on uh, Saturday afternoon, we just kind of took it easy. We came back to the hotel, and we, and we just laid around, did nothing pretty much. Um, then on uh, Sunday I pre- Sunday morning, I preached. I appreciate you praying for me there. We had a good service, um, and it was a lot of fun. Afterwards, they took us out to lunch. And we went to this restaurant where they had a Bahamian buffet. And so we had, yeah, it was good. <laughs> he was very jealous. I mean, he said, I, don't even tell me about this stuff. <laughs> so we had um, pea soup. That doesn't sound like much to you, but boy, I'll tell you something. It's different and it's good. It was outstanding what we had. And then we had uh, peas and rice. We had steamed conch. And by the way, and Tracy, we got some conch fritters one day, and he fell in love with those. Every time we went out to eat somewhere, he had to order conch fritters. He, he wanted to figure, try to figure out a way to bring some back. And uh, those were good. We did enjoy some really good conch fritters. We had steamed conch there. And then we also had some chicken and ribs, and that was all, you know, specialty Bahamian stuff. And then afterwards, I didn't know this, but the re- one reason we went to this one restaurant was because... Three of the guys there knew the owner very well. Well, afterwards, he gave all of us uh, some dessert, and it was guava duff. Now, that, <laughs> amen to that one, too. And I'm going to tell you something. It was really, really good. <laughs> Just to rub it in a little bit, but it really was good, Nelson. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Nelson wants to go back real bad. And Gary, I don't, Gary, you plan on going back this fall? He's, he's planning on going back home. See, he's an American citizen. He's getting his passport all taken care of, and he's just going to head on down there. So Nelson will be the last one now to get to partake. But it was great. We had a great time, and uh, we appreciate you praying for us while we were gone. And um, I heard Jeff did a good job, and then John Bales uh, last week while we were in Nassau. And so we're thankful for that. Of course, now we have coming up, I sent, I think, an email, and I've also announced it on September 12th and 13th. That's a Saturday and a Sunday. Lewis Shuttle is having a, a meeting at his house. Um, um, he has Arlen is coming. Royce is going to be speaking. Jim Brooks, who mo- many of you know or you've heard him before, and, and then a guy named Scott Montgomery. Uh, who came to our first conference that we had up at Calvary Bible Church several years ago, and he'll be speaking as well. So if you'd like to go, let me know. I'll send you an email where you can respond to this lady who's going to kind of take care of the registration, and 
they don't want to get too full because they've got basically about room for about 50. And the last I heard, he had around 15 seats left. So um, you need to get, if you want to go, you got to get in. Now, I'm only going to go over for Saturday. Excuse me. I'll come back Saturday evening and I'll be here to preach on Sunday morning. So I won't be there for the whole thing. Then on the 13th, that day, we were supposed to have Fred Bennett here. Fred called and he had an opportunity to go see his daughter and his son was going to be there. And he said he hadn't had that opportunity for all them to be there in, I mean, a few years. So he wanted to know if he could change the date. So we did. We changed it to the 29th. That also happens to be a Jewish holiday. And he said that'll work out perfectly fine. And so it's still going to be great. We're going to enjoy that. But then on the 13th, of course, we also have Jana's, um, um, whatever you call it, shower. Is that it, a shower? Yeah. I'm, I'm more thinking of the food myself, but uh, uh, we'll be having something to eat too. So it's a carry-in. The lady's taking care of all that. All right. Did I think forget anything else? Um, <laughs> now, that won't work. <laughs> One other thing I got while I was in, I think I got this while I was in Nassau. I think I picked up a cold uh, because I called Seth this morning and found out he had the same cold. He said, my nose is running like a faucet, and mine was too. So, But I got me an Allegra, and I got some of that stopped up, so I think I'm going to be okay. But um, anyway, I guess that's all the announcements for now, and hopefully we got some of the busyness over with. Of course, one of those was unplanned. I went to my aunt's uh, funeral, and it was just a strange situation. <laughs> it was very strange. Uh, they never had any children. And they had lived out in Arizona, and without going through a long story, um, you know, my uncle, who passed away mm, a few years ago, about five or six years ago, seven years ago, I guess, was cremated. And so her body was brought back up to Indiana, and then she was going to be cremated and taken back down to uh, Arizona and be sprinkled over Superstition Mountain, which is where her husband's Part of her husband's ashes were sprinkled. Then they were going to mix them all together and sprinkle the rest of them over Superstition Mountain. So anyway, we made it through that. But I was glad I went. We were a very small family on my dad's side. And there was three kids. Um, my dad's older brother died when he was 39, lung cancer. And then my dad died, as you well know, just a couple, well, two and a half years ago. And then my aunt was the last one. And they didn't have any children my dad's oldest brother had one, and then there was three in my family. So there was four kid, grandkids. So there was not a large, not a large group there, but there was a, quite a few folks came through to uh, pay their last respects and talk with us and so on. Okay, so much for that. That's all over with. Got that done. Let's turn to Revelation chapter two. Um, don't have a lot of time left, Lord willing. Uh, I'm going to get through what I wanted to do because I didn't have a, a, a lengthy lesson today. I'm always leery of saying that. I know I'm, I'm, I'm scared anymore to even mention that, Jerry, because it never, never seems to work. Uh, oh, one thing, I'll th thing I wanted to tell you about the, 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 the service at Gospel Light Baptist Church. We started at 11 o'clock. We got out at 1.30, two and a half hours. I got in the pulpit at 12.30, and I think I got done around 12.15, 12.20, and then, of course, had a few minutes to wrap things up. 
Uh, so, but it was a great service. It really was. Lots of singing um, and, a, and an honor given to a guy who had been involved with bus ministry for many years, and the kids sang to him, and it just really was a great service, and we had a good time. But I just thought we kept telling them, you ain't going to do this in America now. Can't go that long. They'll be walking out on you. <laughs> That two, two and a half hours, three hours. Eight, they told us about some churches that go three and four hours every Sunday. Just That's it. I mean, that's they only meet one time, so they just get it all done at once, and, and that's it. They're done. And uh, lots of churches we went by after we got done. There's still cars in the parking lot. They were still still meeting. Man, here in America, you get about an hour or an hour and 15 minutes and... That's about it. Maybe an hour and a half in some, I guess. But uh, anyway, it was great. All right, Revelation chapter 2. What I want to uh, deal with here this morning, we'll find it's beginning with verse 1, where he says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. <coughs> Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then to the church at, at Pergamum, in verse, and it begins in verse 12, but all I want to read is verse 15. So, that's, so, that, uh, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, by reading that verse, you probably quickly ascertained that I was going to deal with that thing about the Nicolaitans, and I am. But here in these letters to these churches, we have depicted uh, the course of this age in which we live. And these seven churches, I think, are representative of the conditions uh, uh, of various churches throughout the age. I'm not so sure, as some hold, that we can point to historical eras here or, uh, and let each church assign itself to a particular age um, and then have the Laodicean church be our age, the end of the age in which we live. Although these principles are existent now, but they were existent in the day that John wrote this book as well. So they're for all churches of all times in this age. And these things that he's dealing with here regarding these churches, and there's seven of them that he writes to, an epistle, declaring unto them their condition, the things he's displeased with, the things he's pleased with, 
and the consequences if they don't change. Now, you'll notice in, excuse me, in verse 5, he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Now, it's an amazing statement for a church that labored, had patience. He says in verse 2, You could not bear them which were evil. You tried them which were not apostles. And you found them liars. You were born and has patience for my name's sake and so on. All of these things, commendable things for a church. And yet he says, you've fallen. You've changed. You were in a certain place and condition. You had a certain uh, position before me. But now you are fallen. And he calls upon them to repent. If you turn back to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, we find the writer there speaking about some others who had fallen. And that is a picture that the New Testament gives us of what spiritually the church is going through depicted by what in actuality Israel went through. Uh, The scriptures call it a type or an example for us. And what happened was, just to put it in simple terms, you know, God delivered uh, the people of Israel from Egypt. He gave them a promise concerning a land that he was going to take them to. And on the journey, they failed. And he tells us here that because of their failure, he says in verse 11, well, actually in verse 10, one of the things he charges them with, he says, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So... I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And so we see that because of their failure to acknowledge God's promise about taking them into this land of promise, he said, you're not even going to enter in, period, then. And he says there in verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Well, you see, that's exactly what the Lord is charging the church at Ephesus with doing. They had departed from the living God. Though they were holding to some certain commendable practices that the Lord commended them for, about the trying of false apostles and so on and these other things that he mentioned, And yet he tells them down in verse 17, concerning those in the wilderness, he says, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And this falling, this literal falling of those who had died in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, 
because the Lord would not allow them to enter in. He claims as an example for us. And he tells the church at Ephesus, you have fallen. Now, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and keep your finger back there in Revelation 2. We'll go back there. But in 1 Corinthians 10 is is another passage where he mentions the Israelites in the wilderness. (coughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. And in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and passed all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown or as we saw earlier that word overthrown means that they were laid low in the wilderness. Now down in verse 12, after giving an example of the various things that they were guilty of, he says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And of course, to fall there means what it means in 1 Corinthians 9.27 when he said, lest thou be cast away, rejected, or disqualified. And so these things, the, the manner in which the Israelites failed to enter the promised land is given to us as a warning as to how we might fail to enter into the, to the rest that he has for the people of God. Now you remember, I hear, I wanted to... Stay in Hebrews, and I let my finger out of there. And here and now, I've got to go back. Hang on just a second. He says, in, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There is a rest to be entered into, just like the land of Canaan was a land of rest for the people of God, which they were to enter into. But their failure in faith, their failure to believe the Lord's promises along the way disqualified them. And they were not allowed to enter in. And so now back here in Revelation, in chapter 2, dealing with this church at Ephesus, he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. They were in a precarious position. Because if they did not repent, then they would not enter in. Now, in verse 6, one of the things that he also commends them for, he says, is this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And you have to gather from this passage, this verse, that the church at Ephesus had separated themselves from this group called the Nicolaitans because they hated their deeds. And they were not, of the, uh, not a part of the church at Ephesus. 
But if you look over at the church at Pergamum in chapter 2 and verse 15, he tells them there, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And it appears from this passage that the church at Pergamum had allowed this group to remain in the church. Because he says, you have there them also which hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, it ought to be clear to us, I hope, that if Jesus hates something, then we ought to hate it. We ought to despise it. But we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what is this doctrine? Or what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Because he doesn't expressly tell us in so many words just what their doctrine is. He doesn't tell us exactly what their deeds were. But he commends this one church because they hated them also, just like the Lord did. And by the way, if we want to be commended, then we need to hate those things too. But he also holds another church, the church at Pergamum, accountable because they had those same kinds of people in their church. And he tells them it's their doctrine. Now, of course, doctrine ultimately emanates in deeds. If you teach something, before long it will show up in our actions. Because as we assimilate it into our thinking, as we take it into our our mental processes, and if we hear it over and over enough, then eventually it will become part and parcel of what we practice. Now, like I said, I don't know particularly what the doctrine was. He doesn't tell us in so many words. And about the only thing that you have to rely on, the only thing you have to fall back on to determine just what it is that they were guilty of is from the the, the name itself, the Nicolaitans. Now, I know you've heard this before, and it's nothing nothing that's, uh, you know, a mighty revelation concerning the, the word Nicholas or Nicolaitans, which is where the word's derived from. But it has two components to it. Nico and Laos, or Laos, I should say. Nico, from the word Nike, to be a victor, to conquer. And then Laos, people, to be a victor over people, or to rule over people. (coughs) And many think that this is a subtle reference to what later happened in the church when they began to set apart church leaders and give them positions of superiority and honor and dignity that was not to be in the church. And so we had this division often called the clergy-laity division. 
And there were then those who held sway or power over the people. And, of course, you can follow that in church history, and and I have no qualms with that. It appears to me that is a valid understanding and reasoning as to what this, this thing that the Nicolaitans were guilty of would mean. And so in this division then, within the church, and of course it manifested itself over time, primarily in the Roman Catholic Church. But over the centuries, as that power began to build, you know, eventually there came a time, what we know as the Reformation, when certain individuals within the Roman Catholic Church protested against certain teachings and practices in the Catholic Church. And so these protesters uh, eventually came to be known as Protestants. And because they did not totally disassociate themselves from the Roman Catholic Church, they held on to many of the practices that they held on to. And one of those is the the clergy-laity division. And as you think about churches like that, you think about Episcopal churches and Presbyterian churches and, like, say, the Greek Orthodox churches and so on, there is a very, very strong division between those who hold offices of power over those that are in the church. Consequently, one of the manifestations of it would be one that you're very familiar with and you might remember that is in the Catholic Church they withheld the very word of God from them. You know, the, 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 the services of the Catholic Church were held in Latin all the way up to, what was it, around 1960 or something like that, before they changed. There just weren't a lot of people that knew how to read Latin. You know, they did, all they knew is what they were taught. But a change came about. Now, of course... In those who were not in the historical stream of Protestantism, which would be, and there were several groups of churches that did not, in other words, in church history, when you had this branch of the Roman Catholic Church, which eventually emanated in the Protestant churches that we know of today, or denominational churches, but you also had another stream down here of churches who did not associate, did not fall under the captivation of the Roman Catholic Church. And they remained, as it were, independent. They were faithful, loyal to the Scriptures, as much as they knew. not saying they were correct in everything they ever taught, but in this regard, they stayed loyal to the Scriptures. And there is, I think, some kind of historical connection all the way through church history of faithful churches who stayed true to the Word of God. Primarily, then, in those churches, you did not find this division of clergy-laity. And the point being is, is that, and remember, this is the thing that Jesus hates, is the elevation of of individuals to places of power and superiority over others within the body of Christ or within the church. Now, 
There is order in the church. And God has given us in his word what we're to have to maintain order within the church, within the assembly. But I want us to look back at, let's see, Ephesians chapter 4. And I think, and I've told you this before, and I don't mean to beat on it, but it's just the fact that I think it's exactly true is, you know, I don't particularly like having this elevated platform here. The whole idea originally in churches was for the very, it wasn't just so you could see better. It was for the purpose of elevating the pastor or the priest above the people. To let them know that there was a difference between them and him. And and all the others that were holding offices within the church. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, I think Paul gives us the prescription for what it means to stand against such doctrine, such teaching. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's very hard to do. Men love titles. Men, by their very nature, love position. And they love to exercise power. And so, to you know, and it maybe seems small, you know, to have be... Uh, have some kind of a position in a church that has some kind of authority behind it. But it's pretty nice, you know, when you can go say, well, I go to such and such church and I am a deacon, teacher, pastor, elder, you know, whatever, presbyter, bishop, in such and such church. It adds a a little air of distinction. It adds a little more air of, of, of authority. To that individual. And here we have a prescription here, I think, given by the Lord himself, an antidote against that. He says in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith ye are called, the vocation. It's It's the calling. And he says, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering... Forbearing one another in love. And that that word forbearing there, uh, I think you might remember uh, John White wrote a little article about that. It's the word echo. It means to forbear, to hold somebody else up, or to esteem or regard someone else in love. And the reason I came down here, see, to stand down here is because The picture that he's painting here for us as as a body of believers here is we are to treat each other with oh lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another, and the thing that guides all of them is in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit In the bond of peace. Now look at that. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. By holding to these attitudes, these qualities, these character traits of lowliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearance, he says, 
will endeavor, enable us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is one reason why I shy away, and I, I hope that you've picked up on the time that I've been here, that I don't practice Robert's Rules of Order, I don't practice democracy in this church. I don't promote the guy with the most votes wins. If we cannot have unity of spirit, then we're doing something wrong. It's not the guy that, you know, like you hear the world say, the guy with the most toys wins. And the group with the most votes wins. If we're a part of a true, godly, Christ-honoring body, then our heart's desire ought to be to have unity of spirit. Now, I'm not saying we don't have it. Not at all. That's all I've ever evidenced here at this church. So I'm not, I'm not saying that about this church. But I'm saying as you look out around you, in order to keep what we have here, you need to be observant of what goes on around you. You need to watch how other churches operate and see the very things that Paul and John in the book of Revelation, which is actually the Lord Jesus himself, argues against. He says in verse 4, there is one body. You know, if, if you held a democratic vote here over some issue and we had like 80% got voted for one thing and 20% wanted something else, what do you really have? Do you have a divided body or would you actually have two bodies? <laughs> well, it really doesn't matter because what you don't have is one body. There's division. And so it's the, the unity of, uh, of the spirit in the bond of peace with love overriding all of it. That's how the, the, the organic body of Christ is to function. That's the means by which, but you know how, you know, if you don't have these things, if you are not seeking the things that the Lord has, for instance, the rest or that bright hope for tomorrow or other terms that the Lord uses to describe what lays out there yet in the future for us, the future inheritance, the coming kingdom, if we are not seeking those things, if we don't have those as, our, as the, the motivating factor in our lives, then you're going to be a church that has to bring in order somehow. And so how are you going to do it? Well, we're going to bring in these rules. Not from the scriptures, man-made rules. I know I've been in more than one church that uses Robert's Rules of Order to guide the function of the body so that they have order. That's why they call it Robert's Rules of Order. You know what the Lord's Rule of Order is here? <laughs> the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, guided by love. And that's, that's what I love about this church, is that when we've met to conduct business, we talk things out. And if there's even one descending vote, and I don't mean like a formal vote, but I mean one dissenting opinion, somebody who's of another mindset, then you better not, you know, better not move on that. 
until there's a, a unified spirit, a, an agreement to it. And then he says, there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your, of your calling. There's only one hope for the church, just one. And it's our calling. He says it's one hope of your calling. Now, I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard in, in the past an explanation given to me of what, it, what hope in the Bible is. And this is the explanation that was given. Hope is not hope. Hope in the Bible is not hope like you and I understand it. Because when we say we hope for something, we declare that there's you know, an air of uncertainty about it. In other words, it's a probability. It may happen. And it may not. But in the Bible, it's not the same. It's a guaranteed thing. Well, I dare say that's not true. Hope in the scriptures is not any different than the hope that you and I understand. It's a probability. It may happen. That's why you want to cling to it. That's why you want to desire to have the fulfillment of that hope in your life. Now, he tells us there, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So this calling, and by the way, he says, even as you're called in one hope of the calling. There's an article there. It's the calling. Well, now, let's go back to the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to close with this. I've got two or three things to talk about, but I'm going to close over here. <coughs> I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 3, where we were earlier, Hebrews chapter 3, and look at verse 6. He says there, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hope is something that you have to cling to, that you have to hold to. And it's something that he says we need to cling to right to the very end. That is to the very end of your life. Never letting go of it. Now, if we turn over to chapter 6, and verse 18. There he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, of course, I would wonder, you know, a good question to ask right now would be, have you fled for refuge for the hope that lies before you? Have you ever actually done that? Have you ever actually said, I am going to set my faith and my hope upon the promise of what God has out there in the future, for the one who trusts in him and believes in him. 
You see, it's one thing just to acknowledge it and say, well, that's, I see that's what the Bible says. It's another thing altogether to set your heart, your soul, upon seeking that hope and the fulfillment of it in your own life. Verse 19 says, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he says here, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And we have a forerunner, he says, who has entered into that within the veil. Now, I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll close with this one. Now, I don't have time to go back and, and lay all this out in order because our time actually is gone. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, just read this verse here, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, you already have to stop right there and think about that. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Something out before the Lord Jesus caused him to endure the cross. And he willingly endured that cross because of this joy that was out yet before him. Something in the future and it says there, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, that tells us right there what the joy was. The prospect that he eventually would sit on a throne. And there he's sitting now on a throne at the right hand of God. Ministering as a high priest, but ultimately... When he returns to rule over this earth. And so consequently, those who cling and hold to this hope that he's speaking of here will have the opportunity to, to share in the very same thing the Lord Jesus is, is doing now. And that is co-ruling with him. Now, I, I had a paper back there in the office and I, I forgot to bring it with me. So I'm just going to give it to you from my recollection. Uh, it's a little little newsletter thing I get uh, in the mail. comes out every two or three months. And there's a, a guy that writes a little article in there called Prophecy Corner. And as, as a part of his description of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom, he says it in the most plainest words that you can imagine. He says that all... Christians are going to rule and reign with Christ, even the carnal ones. Now, that's almost verbally, word for word, what he says. Even the carnal ones. Now, that's really not such an unusual thing. It is amazing how much of the church at large, the church in the world today, believes that. That we can just live any old way we want to. 
And we can serve the Lord, do all those things that the uh, the church at Ephesus was doing, and have things that we can be commended for, and yet fail. Be fallen as they fell. Remember, he says, where thou art fallen, and repent. And so consequently, the practice that we have to enter into as a Christian, in our daily walk, as a believer, as we, as we walk through this life, is to keep our focus on that which is out ahead, the hope. The hope of securing an entrance into the Lord's coming kingdom and sharing in that future rule with him. And the manner in which we do that, he says, is to repent. To continually be about change. Not the change of politicians, but the change of the heart so that we continually walk in a faithful, unified, one-spirit manner before the Lord. You walk like that, and you can walk in boldness, you can walk in assurance and confidence that you're going to stand before the Lord one day, and he's going to look on you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The same joy that he entered into, we have the prospect of entering into as well. I think the greatest thing could ever happen to me would be there'd be a crowd of you around. We would just all enter in together all at once. Everybody being found faithful. Everybody having died in faith. That's our goal. Let's pray. Father... Lift our hearts, I pray, in assurance and confidence. Lord, we know we gain that by obedience. And I pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to live an obedient life, to walk faithfully before you, to be holy in our manner of walk, and to not fall into that trap as uh, of the Nicolaitans, and allowing others to control us, to, to ruin our lives, but to realize we have an individual responsibility before you. Granted, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we want to have a, just a very brief hymn of invitation. We'll sing one verse and give you an opportunity. If you would like to come, if there's a need in your heart, uh, we don't want to be in such a hurry that we would delay and not giving you an opportunity to come this morning. Where's the bomb?